Huh? Good morning. How are you? Man, I'm so glad to be up here. Thank you for being here. We really appreciate it. Uh, man, there's no, no better use of your time than to gather together in God's name. I'm Pastor Scott. I get to do the teaching this weekend. It's a humbling and scary thing to offer up God's word. So uh, I hope you join me in that uh, fear. Uh, <laughs> we're continuing in our series, CrossFit. We're in 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to be teaching through verses 4 through 8. But as I read, I'm going to read through verse 10 because I think it finishes Peter's thoughts well. And uh, also... Uh, there's some really sweet language in verses 9 and 10, so we don't want to miss out on that. Um, one thing I want to remind us of is that in the, the uh, earlier parts of the, the letter from Peter, uh, he points out that he's, he's speaking to uh, Christians of different levels of maturity. There may be even unbelievers there, and I think that's true for our church, and I think it's also true as far as the maturity thing goes that there are some of us, or some people that um, either by age or by how long they've been walking with the Lord are more mature than others. And also there are those that by age or how long they've been walking with the Lord that are less mature than others. It's the same is true for this church. Even the pastors, there's Ray and Darren, and then there's Ryan Cook and Ryan Reed and myself and Kevin, the more mature ones. And so, you know, you with me, brother? I'm with All right, Ryan, thanks. Okay. So we just need to have that perspective as we uh, encounter, endeavor this. And so also one thing that we'll point out in just a little bit is that we're all children in the eyes of God. That means we don't know everything. And so let's go, uh, let's read God's word first. Are you hungry for God's word this morning? Okay. I want to do this in reverence of his word and him. Would you stand with me as we read the scripture? So 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 4, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those that do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were a people, excuse me, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That is rich, isn't it? That is God's word. So you may be seated. Thank you very much. You'll forgive me. I'm going to uh, use this chair because I'm wearing my corset. I need some core strength, I need some support back here. So I'm gonna sit uh, and, and do this. So bear with me. So God's word is incredible. In this scripture, we see the, the perfect balance between mercy 
and justice. We see the awe of God's perfect grace and the fear of his perfect justice. And I gotta say that sometimes God's perfect justice, it's really offensive to us. The gospel in itself is offensive that we're so bad that he had to die. But it's balanced out by the sweetness that we're so loved that he wanted to die. And so when we come to those crossroads, which we are gonna come to those crossroads today, we need God's help to soften our hearts and maybe uh, put a crack or two in our heads so, so that his word can get in and we can reconcile those things through his truth and not our own. So I think we should ask him to help us with that. Would you pray with me? Oh God, thank you so much for your love. Lord, this, this song that we just sang, Cornerstone, what an amazing song and the words. What I caught in that song, Lord, was that um, Christ alone, cornerstone, it says, uh, even in the storm, you are Lord of all. You're not just Savior, you're Lord of all. Not just us, but you're Lord over the storm, and we are so thankful for that. Lord, each and every one of us here is at different places in our relationship with you, and you would have it that way, so we ask you to speak to our hearts individually and also as a church. We thank you for this time together here. God, we're laid low and humble by your majesty, and we confess that without your son, we're without hope. So, Lord, your word is sometimes offensive to our ears, and the enemy would have us bite at that bitter bait and judge you and your word according to our own uh, stumbling. So God, through your spirit and through Christ, please guide us away from that frightening place and help us to understand and remember and believe that you are God and we are not and that we can trust you with, with everything. With fear that we, we ask that uh, supernaturally you touch our ears and our hearts. And God, if it means brokenness, then we long for that. And God, if it's for the first time, oh, we beg for it. Holiness apart from Christ is in vain, the one who was broke us for, broken for us also. Lord, through your word and your spirit, light the dark places in our hearts that we might see the preciousness of your son Jesus who lived and died and now lives again to establish your kingdom that we pray right now will come. And we pray that your will will be done in our hearts and our minds and in our homes and in this house, your church, all to your glory, in Jesus' name. Amen. God is so good. So I want to review a little bit a particular subject. Uh, we, in our CrossFit series, the, there was a series of teachings. If you missed them, I encourage you to go back and listen to them. It was about wholeness and what that looks like biblically and how that happens through Christ. So if you missed it, go back and look at it. But I want to uh, revisit a particular verse that was included there. It was 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 14 and 15, it says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So as I pointed out a little bit earlier, in God's eyes, we're all children. And sometimes children can learn and grow and be obedient children, but it doesn't mean that they'll all be obedient. Is that true, parents? They'll always be obedient, that's not true. Uh, so, so what happens is they go back to their passions of their former ignorance, and we do that too as Christians, and so we have to understand that about ourselves. 
but we also have to have a clear view of God as well. And that is, it says that he who called you is holy. God is the epitome of holiness. He is the essence of holiness. He is a holy God. Holy, holy, holy. And so we cannot be holy as it might appear as it says here. We can in our conduct adopt God's holiness through his son Jesus Christ and so we are in, to endeavor to be holy in our conduct to, be, uh, to give evidence that God's doing something in our lives. And so it is a command for us to be holy, but as he says here, you shall be holy for I am holy. That's a declaration of us in Christ, not a declaration of us in our conduct. Is that... Does that make sense? Okay, so that's where we need to start. So Peter has taught us all, all already in this beautiful book that uh, the sweetness of salvation, that we're saved through Christ. And uh, now he wants to show us and teach us about our status as Christians and to encourage us to keep that top of mind so that we can live with the awareness and in that status as Christians. So your first thought, your first fill in the blank is Christ's holiness gives us our status as Christians. Whose holiness? Christ's holiness gives us our status as Christians. I think sometimes we forget that and we flip the script and uh, we try and be holy only to find out that we can't. And so we have to remember that upon his holiness, our holiness is built. We're living stones being built. And so Christ has satisfied the requirements of holiness for us, but also he does that in us also. He is the cornerstone that's been set. The cornerstone is set first. The cornerstone is uh, set true by God. And so the cornerstone sets and represents the, the vertical trueness of the whole house and also, excuse me, horizontal trueness of the whole house and the vertical trueness of the, of the whole house. Um, Peter gets this name for Christ as the cornerstone from Isaiah chapter 28. It's a very scary chapter in the way of judgment and we'll get that to that later today. But I wanted to point out what I just said was it says, in verse 16 and 17, Behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. He who believes will not be in haste, and I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line. So the cornerstone establishes justice and it sets righteousness as the plumb line. And so what I went back to, if we don't recognize that and live in that status, we try and be holy when it ourselves, only to find that we can do that. So we say things to ourselves like, I gotta go to church, gotta read my Bible more, gotta pray more, gotta give more. Those are wonderful things and necessary things and we're responsible to do those things in our Christianity, in our status, but it's not those things that make us holy. It's why we do those things. So what am I to do is the wrong question. What has been done for me 
Who did it and why are the right questions. You see, these are all things, uh, going to church, reading our Bible, praying, and giving are all holy fruits that grow out of a heart that knows that our status begins, ends, is in, and goes on in Christ. We can't get it backwards. And so let me describe what that looks like as far as holy fruit goes. Unholy fruit, I have to go to church. Holy fruit, you mean to tell me that in Christ, I am called a child of God because that's what I am, because God said so, and that I can gather together with other children of God in a place that he calls the church, the bride of Christ, that he would build us up into a spiritual house, and there I can come all broken and tattered and dirty and messed up and confused, and he will actually meet me there in a place of other people that he's doing the same thing, and we can learn and grow and love and forgive and grow together, and that we could sing songs like we sang this morning and worship him, and he himself would inhabit the praises of his people. Ah, I wanna go there. That's holy fruit. How about reading your Bible? It's a good thing to read your Bible. But the best holy fruit about it is, is that you mean to tell me that the creator of the universe, the one that holds this whole universe in balance, that he breathed scripture and it's been placed in my hand and that in it I can read a story that he writes with mercy's pen that says, although you're messed up in generations before you, I have made a way through Christ to save you. And through my spirit, I can speak to you through this love letter that I've given you. And I can change you from the inside out. And I can give you a path to follow. I can give you a Christ to love. I can give you a purpose in your life that's way beyond anything else that this world could give you. You mean that's what I can get from reading the Bible? Yeah, that's holy fruit. How about prayer? Now I lay me down to sleep. Oh, it's so much more than that. To think that the creator of the universe, the one that holds this clump of dirt called earth on its axis in balance, far enough away from the sun that we don't burn to death and close enough to the sun that it won't freeze to death, that he would be mindful of me and he's not only mindful of me through Christ, I can approach his perfectness, his throne. I can not only do that, he longs for me to pour my heart out to him, to give him my deepest fears, my biggest and smallest longings, my smallest fears, and that he cares, he wants to hear. He longs for me to cry out to him, Abba, Father, oh, Daddy, I'm scared, I'm messed up, I'm lost. And through Christ, and that has given us a way to the throne, he wants to hear that. And he not only wants to hear that, he longs to hear that, and he longs to be able to answer those prayers that we cry out to him in humility and under the covering of what Christ has done for us. You have an audience of one with God in prayer. That's holy fruit. Is that amazing? How about giving? I don't talk about giving. Here's, here's the thing. 
the sustainer of life, if you believe in Christ, the sustainer of life has knitted you together in your mother's womb. He knew you before you were formed. And as you were born and you grow up, you've got these fingers and toes and muscles and organs and a circulatory system and a respiratory system. He gives you every breath that you have. He gives you every heartbeat in your chest. He gives you a brain to think and comprehend and understanding even the words that are coming out of my mouth. That's amazing. He gives you ears to hear and eyes to see, to perceive things. And he takes all that and he allows us to be stewards of that and do what we call make a living. So I can take all of what God has given me in my being and work, and he gives us the opportunity to work and to learn and to grow. And I can get a paycheck for that. And with my paycheck, I can take care of my family, I can pay my bills, I can have a home and cars and things or whatever God would have me have. And then he would say, okay, I've given you everything. Just take a little bit and give it back to me. And we call that giving. And he takes that and, and, he, and he asks us to give it to what he's doing in this, in this church, in this world, for, to build his kingdom. And, and we're called generous because we give back the very thing that God has given us in the first place. Isn't that pretty humbling? You can't outgive God. You can try. But, uh, man, it, it's, it's fun to try. But uh, that, that's holy fruit. That's the right attitude. Not what am I to do, but what's been done for me. And out of that comes these attitudes about church and the Bible and prayer and giving and things like that. It's wonderful. It's a heart that grows out of that knowledge that uh, it begins, ends, is from. It goes on in Christ. And so God has made a way through Christ to satisfy these holy requirements not only for us but in us so that what? So that we'll be happy and things? No, so that he is seen as holy and he's given the glory and we can live within his glory. That ought to do something to us. That ought to do something to our attitudes and that's our next fill in the blank is our Christian status ought to grow, grow us in willing, sacrificed, and durable humility which are spiritual sacrifices, but only, only through Christ. Sacrifice and humility, that's against my nature. Well, it's not a groveling, shriveling back humility that cowers at the submission of every social whim or personal demand that someone might make on you. We don't sacrifice and become humble to please other people or to make ourselves feel better, to feel liked or to feel wanted. That's, that's not what it's talking about. It's a willing sacrifice. It's adorable humility. No matter what anybody says about me, I am adorable because of what God says about me, not what people say about me. And in that, I can love people wherever they're at because I have the durability of humility in Christ. And it's also not a prideful sacrifice that says, oh, what I did was nothing. Hold your applause while I bow. That's, that's a wrong sacrifice. That's about you and about me. That's not about God and that we do it because he's given us everything. Uh, it's a willing and durable humility that says, I will sacrifice myself however God wants to use me 
in the way he wants to use me, even if it hurts or it's difficult or uncomfortable because it brings him glory and because it's building his house. One of my favorite theologians, Charles Spurgeon, has a wonderful saying. It's, it's no life can surpass that of a man who quietly serves God in the place where providence has placed him. That is willing sacrifice and that's durable humility. And our example is Christ. Christ who was humble and willingly sacrificial and durable all the way to the cross in submission to his Father on our behalf. Do you remember the Garden of Gethsemane? What did he say? Oh God, take this cup from me. So what he was saying is, God, in my, in my humanness, Father, in my humanness, I can't handle this cup that I am bearing. But I know that you know better, and I know that my strength is not in me and my humanness. It's in you, God. So not my will, but thy will. And so what, here's, what amazing happens is what follows sacrifice, willing sacrifice and durable humility is exaltation. After Christ did that, he was placed on a cross to pay for our sins, but then God exalted him in the resurrection. He now sits at the right hand of the Father. And what's even more amazing is in our salvation through Christ, God joins us to Christ's exaltation. Does it give you a little confidence to know that? That's an amazing truth. So we're all known as God's people. We're known as his temple. We're known as his kingdom. We're known as a priesthood. And not only a, a priesthood, but it says here a royal priesthood. Um, the Old Testament always, pictures always point to a New Testament reality. This uh, commentary by Edmund Clowney says this. It says, to speak of a growing temple of living stones stretches an Old Testament figure to convey a New Testament reality. The figure of the tabernacle temple pictured the presence of God among his people. God's tent was pitched in the center of Israel's wilderness camp, and in the land of promise, God made the temple at Jerusalem his dwelling. God was there among his people. They belonged to him and he to them. When the word became flesh and tented among us, the symbol became reality. The God of glory came to dwell with us. And as John points out, we have seen his glory and the glory of the one and only. And also in John 2.21, it says that the true temple is Christ's body. And so what this means is we are united to Christ. The living stones are joined to the cornerstone. And in that way, the church becomes the true house of God. It's an amazing concept. There's something, no, a word that's used in the Bible, it's a name, it's Zion. And that particular picture speaks of Zion. Zion in the Bible means where God is, where his temple is, his dwelling place. But it's also known as a place of his people. It's known as a people. The Bible talks about, oh, Zion. It's talking about God's people. And uh, Psalm 125 says, those that put their trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion and cannot be moved and will abide forever. So what does the building of this house look like? Well, the house is founded on the cornerstone, Christ, and there are living stones, you and I, being built into God's house, and there are other living stones yet to be laid. And so it's a process that happens. God's 
growing us up individually. He calls us living stones in Christ, but he's growing his church also. But what's scary is that sometimes we try and move God, move the cornerstone, move Christ, or shim him up a little bit. You know, God, I, I like the cornerstone, but can we just kind of scoot it over this way because that'll, that'll be better for me. But when that happens, we move the plumb line. We, we change the line of justice. We change the standard of righteousness and the house becomes crooked. And so we ought to be asking ourselves as Christians is, am I resting on Christ the cornerstone in such a way that I really, really believe what I say I believe and I'm really resting where I say I rest or where my Christianity rests, where my status comes from. When we don't do that, there's something wrong. Peter is not only talking, uh, his language here is corporate. When he says this is the temple, he's not talking about a body of an individual believer, but he's talking about the body of believers, the collection of living stones. But if we look back, Peter's uh, letter still shows us that he's concerned about the holiness of God's temple. Not only when we gather to worship, but in the individual lives of each living stone. Remember what we talked about, don't go back to the passions of your former ignorance. He's kind of concerned about that. And also, you know, in all your conduct, be holy. The Bible usually tells us not to do things that in our sinfulness we usually pick to do. And when it tells us to do things in our sinfulness, we usually don't choose to do those things. And so we need to pay attention to God's word in that way. And so when we come to those crossroads to either follow God's word or not follow God's word, we are, our faith is tested. Sometimes it's because of our decisions, but sometimes it's because of the decisions of other people in the world. Nevertheless, we're tested. And as I read from Isaiah 28, the cornerstone has been tested first, right? And so, what does that look like in our lives? How do you respond to testing? Does how you respond to testing show that you are resting on the cornerstone who is Christ? How's your endurance? The cornerstone is indestructible. That's not true for the living stones. We have cracks and dings and fissures and stuff like that, but we rest on the cornerstone. And so how we respond to our testing is going to talk about or show where we are resting. And so <clears throat> when we get that and we're okay with that and we're like, okay, God, just test me however you want to. I'm resting on Christ. We can understand and live out when God's word says, my strength, God's strength, is made perfect, perfect, where? In your weakness. <sighs> I like that formula. That's a wonderful way to live. So can you endure? Yeah, in Christ. So there's a reality uh, to our union in Christ and our union or disunion in Christ is seen in each living stone but what's so cool, and we need something cool in this hot desert, uh, is to, to think about the mutual union that we share in Christ as, as a church, as his bride. 
So our mutual union in Christ does a couple of things. It removes some tensions. It removes individual tension, but it also removes societal or community tension. Let me explain that. Sometimes we come in and we, if we try and be holy in our own regard because our conduct is more important than his grace and mercy and what he does, we end up saying, well, look what I did. Look what I have to offer. Or we complain and say, well, if no one else is going to do it, I guess I have to. If God's not taking care of this, I guess it's up to me. That's minimizing the cornerstone. That's stepping off the cornerstone. That's moving the cornerstone. But we also flip that coin and go to the other side, which is, which is just as wrong, and say, you know, I, I know God's given me some gifts, but I don't, I don't have anything to offer. I, I can't, you know, I can't contribute to the church. It's just so little. You're minimizing what God has given you and done to you. That's not your decision. You were placed in this church. If you're part of this church family, you're placed here to do something that God wants you to do and nobody else. So don't be in fear that you don't have anything to contribute. That's not resting on the cornerstone. And don't hold yourself up in the gifts that you have to offer to think they're so important that the house is gonna crumble if you don't offer those things. No, go in sacrificial and willing sacrifice and durable humility to offer whatever you have in Christ because that's where your status comes from. But it also removes this social tension. Let me ask you this. Do you think the world values the church Do you think that they count Jesus, the cornerstone, as precious and authoritative? No. But boy, they sure hold us to the high standards, don't they? And when we violate their agendas and their call to us to the causes that we're Christians and, or you're Christians and you're supposed to fight our cause and so if you don't like what we're doing, that means that you're trying to take the rights away of like women or you know, whatever the social agenda might be. Well, I'm sorry, last time I got my orders, heard I got my orders from God, not from you. And you call yourself Christians. See, when when we rest on the cornerstone, we're not threatened or affected by that kind of talk. But we also uh, don't shun them. We love them right where they are and, and show Christ through our conduct because we have confidence in Christ. And so it's, it's so awesome. It's in our community, in, our, in our, our, our common union in Christ as living stones being built into a spiritual house that we find our, our place and our purpose. And it's way beyond us individually, but it's the best place. It's the best place. The word Peter uses here for house is oikos. I think probably if you've been around here long enough, you've used, heard us use that word a lot here at Desert Breeze, oikos. Oikos, it's where I can join together with these other living stones and I can love and be loved. I can forgive and be forgiven. I can take what God has given me and bless other people. And God's gonna take what other, he gave other people and bless me. Ah, it's a great, great environment to grow. And it's not only just on Sundays. It's every day of the week. 
That's why small groups are so, so important to us here. We say life change happens best in small groups because that's where life happens. It's intimate. It's, that's where we have intimate relationships. This is kind of a corporate thing. We get to hear God's word. This is important. Very important. It's the catalyst, though, to, to life change. And so we can find our joy in that. But it all rests where? Help me out. On Christ, the cornerstone. But when we're saved, we don't stop being sinners. We're sinners saved by grace. And so we get stuck sometimes, don't we? We love to talk about the Savior. But when it comes to talking about the Lord, we kind of get stuck sometimes. And like I said, and I prayed that, uh, that we get, uh, get a little sideways when we give God all the control. We're not actually giving it to him. He's in control, so you're just fighting against him. So when we come to those times, there's times when we encounter spiritual truths that change our perception of our sweet Savior. And it's in this, those times that we need to bow our heads and our hearts to him as Lord. Otherwise, we're stepping off the stone and we're not resting fully on him as the chosen cornerstone. You see, Christ was sent here to earth in the form of a man for a particular reason. In Philippians 2, 9 through 11, it says, Therefore God has exalted him and has bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the, at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we cannot confuse God's sweetness with his sovereignty. Let's dive into our, our, uh, our uh, wrestling ring here. Uh, fill in number four. Your destiny is determined by the God of truth. Let me say that again. Your destiny is determined by the God of the truth. Yeah, but he's supposed to be. Your destiny is determined by the God of truth. Yeah, but isn't he? Your destiny is determined by the God of truth. So to go on in the fill-in, your acceptance or rejection of Christ, the cornerstone, is evidence that points to your God and will lead to either stumbling or status. That's what his word says right here. Verse 8, they stumble because they disobeyed the word as they were destined to do. As they were destined to do. We're not going to go there yet. Hang on. We need an attitude check. I needed one when I was putting together this message and God sure gave it to me. It was before, I it was after I broke my back, but he nevertheless got my attention. <clears throat> so we have to understand, we have to have the attitude that his purpose and his position are the greatest attributes of his preciousness. And his attributes point to his supremacy. And when we miss his supremacy, we miss his preciousness. I was trying to figure out how to communicate the supremacy of Christ, and there's someone that I found that did it, does it so much better than I can. His name is Vodi Bakum. He's a, a very talented pastor and theologian, and uh, he did a teaching. You can find the full teaching on YouTube. Just uh, Google or YouTube Vodi Bakum, The Supremacy of Christ in a Postmodern World. But I just wanted to show you one clip here that it will get, our, get us uh, righted 
with the truth. So watch this video. My students come up to me all the time after taking a semester in philosophy. There ought to be a rule. You should not be able to talk about philosophy unless you've had more than a semester of philosophy. If you haven't had any, that's fine. Talk away. But if you've had a semester, you are messed up. Be better off just not taking it at all. And they'll come up and they'll say things to me and they fought these things out. And I'm on the campus to talk about these issues and dealing with apologetics and they want to catch me alone and ask me these questions and they look at me and they say, I just wanted to ask you that um, if you believe in a God that is omnipotent and omnibenevolent, then how do you reconcile the issue of theodicy? To which I respond, took a semester of philosophy, right? Oh yes, how did you know? Because if you hadn't, you'd have just said, listen, God's so powerful and so good, how come bad stuff happens? <laughs> but I'm not going to answer the question until you ask it correctly. <laughs> I worked on that all week. What do you mean ask it correctly? You're not asking the question properly. What do you mean ask the question properly? It's my question. You can't tell me how to ask my question. I will answer your question when you ask it properly. How do I ask it properly? Here's how you ask that question properly. You look me in my eyes and you ask me this. How on earth can a holy and righteous God know what I did and thought and said on yesterday and not kill me in my sleep last night. You ask it that way and we can talk. But until you ask the question that way, you don't understand the issue. Until you ask the question that way, you believe the problem is out there. Until you ask the question that way, you believe that there are somehow some individuals who in and of themselves deserve something other than the wrath of Almighty God. Until you ask me the question that way, until you flip the script and ask the question this way and say, why is it that we are here today? Why has he not consumed and devoured each and every one of us? Why, why, oh God, does your judgment and your wrath tarry? When you ask it that way, you understand the issue. When you ask it the other way, you believe in the supremacy of man. How dare God not employ his power on behalf of Almighty Man. You flip the question around, you believe in the supremacy of Christ. How dare I steal his heir? Because the last breath I took, I borrowed it from him. And I'm never going to give it back. When you borrow something and never give it back, you're stealing. I mean, you need to take a moment and get right right now. 
problem is me. The problem is the fact that I do not acknowledge the supremacy of Christ in truth. The problem is I start with me as the measure of all things. The problem is I judge God based upon how well he carries out my agenda for the world. And I believe in the supremacy of me in truth. Ouch. That's pretty hardcore, isn't it? Your destiny is determined by the God of truth. And when we miss the supremacy of Christ, we miss his preciousness. And so I think now we're ready to go through verse 8. And so it says, they stumbled because they disobeyed as they were destined to do. We don't have any problem with the first part because you and I can say all day long, we can look at people, we can even look at kids and say, hey, if you play in traffic, you're destined to get hit by a car, right? Or we can say to one another, hey, if you eat too much and you're unhealthy and you don't exercise, you're destined to gain weight, you're destined maybe to have a heart attack or get diabetes or a number of other things. We can say that in truth, right? Or, hey, if you put things in your veins and you drink to excess, it's destined to lead to a, a, an addiction and maybe even death. Or, hey, if you treat people a certain way, whether it's your wife or your husband or your friends or your family, you're destined to have broken relationships or no relationships at all. We don't have a problem saying that, do we? Where we get offended is, is where it says, which they were destined to do. Destined to do what? Destined to stumble or destined to disobey? Well, if you're stumbling, you're disobeying, and if you're disobeying, you're stumbling, but it's the destiny part that we have an issue with. Did God make us disobey? Did he make us stumble? I don't know, maybe, but he has the right to, and that offends us, but he's a righteous God. So the attitude we get is, that's not fair. Well, you know what? God's not fair. God is just. Believe me, you do not want God to be fair. Okay? All you have to do is look at the cross and understand what Christ has done for you and know that God put him there it was necessary for him to go to the cross because of our sin, but God placed him there. That is not fair. But it's to satisfy the requirements of this holy justice. It's because of Christ I'm not getting what I deserve. You don't demand salvation. If God makes decisions based on our feelings... He's not sovereign, we are. And it doesn't work that way. And so we need to wrestle. We need to wrestle. Are you wrestling? We're doing it together. That's the cool thing. Spiritual truths are hard and uh, they involve judgment and judgment is very, very strong. But God is good and he, he gives us an opportunity through Christ 
We can't throw away the encouragement in Christ because he's judging us. Then we're not resting on the cornerstone. So here we find the crossroads of truth and grace. And the, the next feeling is, is in full view of Christ's preciousness, Lord and Savior, a life-changing approach to Christ requires an understanding of the extreme disparity between his full rejection by men and his intended placement by God to be rejected. You mean he intended him to be rejected? That's not fair. Yeah, but it's necessary, and it's just. In Isaiah 53, it says that all we like sheep have gone astray, and he has placed the iniquity of us all on him. He's talking about Christ. And in verse 10, it says that, it says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. In another translation, it says, it pleased the Lord to crush him. That's offensive. It stirs our sensibilities to, to justice. But it was for justice's sake that he put him where he put him for our behalf, on our behalf. And so that stirs me and it makes me want to count Christ more precious when I go there and understand what God did for me. But here's what I know, is that I cannot fully know how precious Christ is. How precious the blood that he shed on the cross is. You know why? Because it didn't cost me a thing. The only contribution I made to the cross was my sin. Only the Father knows how much it cost him. Only the Father knows how precious he is. If you as a parent had a child and you were to sacrifice your child on for the good of someone else, don't do that, by the way. But if you were to sacrifice your child for the good of someone else and didn't really get anything back for it and someone came to you and said, yeah, I know how you're feeling, that would be offensive. You would say, no, you don't. You have no idea what it cost me. And so we don't know the full preciousness of Christ. And in, in, in valuing Christ's preciousness, there's, there's an immediate cost, which is the one that I just talked about that we can't even understand. But there's a value in the instrumental cost. Because as I prayed and talked about earlier, that God has made a way for us to go to the Father to approach, approach the Holy Throne. If he didn't, we'd all be grease spots on the road. But there's not only instrumental cost, there's a protective cost and value in Christ. When we speak the name of Jesus, when we're being tested and trialed and tormented by the enemy, we speak Christ's name and he flees. And so there's a cost way beyond what I think we remember sometimes. And when finding and fashioning a cornerstone, it costs more than all the other stones combined. And it takes as much time to find and fashion that cornerstone than it takes to build the rest of the building. This cornerstone is perfect in every way. It is the most durable. The setting of it establishes the line and the course horizontally and vertically for all the other stones. This cornerstone is set first and upon it rests the status and the durability of the entire house. So if you're troubled by uh, this judgment part, that's good. <laughs> I hope God's working on your heart. I pray that you would give yourself to him. And if it's for the first time, 
Give it to him. Praise God. If you've been walking with Christ for a time and uh, it seems that uh, you're still offended, give the rest of yourself to him. Because we can all know through Christ what it means when it says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people, one that have not received mercy, but now has received mercy. Would you stand with me for closing prayer? God, thank you so much for your truth. All of it, God. Help us in our falling and our stumbling and in not understanding how precious Christ really is. Help us to rest on him in our lives individually, but also as a church in you, counting Christ as the perfect cornerstone where we find our willing sacrifice and our durable humility. And help us to be like Zion, Lord, the, the name that you call us, that we would be like Mount Zion, that we would not be moved and that we would abide forever in Christ. In Jesus' name we all pray, amen. Hey, thank you. God bless you. Have a good week.